Good morning. How's everybody doing today? All right. That's a pretty good answer. Good to see all of you. Uh, before we get started this morning, I want to tell you something that's coming up uh, that I think you'll want to know about, and you can help me uh, with this, I suppose. So uh, we're in week number eight of our David series, and next week we'll be looking at David the Cynic, and, um, which is very interesting. It's a cool story in the story of David. Uh, but here's what I want to say about that. Um, our new student pastor, uh, Clay Minor, uh, will be teaching next week. Uh, it'll be his first time on, on this stage. And um, I, I want to make him as nervous and it, make it as awkward as possible. So if you could just invite like 32 friends each and we just pack people in here and you can heckle him, uh, that would be great. We're evaluating. We've never heard, I've never actually heard him teach. And so, uh, which is weird, we hire him without me even knowing if he could teach or not. And so um, I figure if you'll make it real awkward, they'll give me all kinds of things to uh, have to deal for him to have to deal with the following week as he explains why he melted and fell apart on the stage. So if y'all can help me make that happen. No, I'm kidding. If you're a parent of uh, one of our teenagers, and um, I, I know that you have probably already experienced uh, how valuable he is to our team around here. And uh, we're stoked that, um, that he is a part of our LifePoint staff. And um, he does a great job in sermon prep behind the scenes. And I can't wait to hear him teach. And so all kidding aside, um, be here next week. Uh, I think you'll be glad that you were. And uh, it'll be a little bit of a throwback to a 20-year-old being on the stage at LifePoint. It's been a long time since that's happened. So or 20-something-year-old. Um, so anyway, be here for that next week. And uh, we look forward to it. Uh, this week... This week, we're dealing with a very interesting topic in the life of David. We actually called him a loser, um, which is so interesting because when you think about David, uh, and, and you know, if you grew up in church like I did, um, you know, David is, is one of those, he's one of the, the people in Scripture that, I mean, there is high regard for. In fact, he's the, second, he's the second king of Israel, but still to this day is regarded by Israelites, by the nation of Israel, as the greatest king that they've ever had. Um, I mean, there's a lot of regard for him. And then today we kind of have the gall to refer to him as a loser, which is kind of interesting. Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to this morning's message because um, I think that the principle that we learn in this passage of Scripture is so important. And, and I, I want to I begin by kind of saying this is um, I think that you, there, there's a couple of ways to learn. I mean, people learn in all kinds of different ways. Uh, but maybe the two best ways to learn is, uh, one is through pain. Uh, we learn by experiencing something that was not, you know, positive. It was not beneficial. It hurt. Uh, there were repercussions, and so we learn that way. Uh, but we can also learn from perspective. And this morning, I want to challenge you to take an opportunity, um, you know, to learn from someone else's pain. Uh, the, the best way to learn, I mean, the, the, is, is to look at other people who've made mistakes and realize the power, of, the power of a bad example and learn from it. And this morning, we have the opportunity to look at David's life. And what's very interesting about David's life is in spite of the fact that he's still considered the greatest king, in spite of the fact that he's called a man after God's own heart, uh, he was anointed by the prophet to be the next king of Israel, uh, there were songs that were written about him. Uh, he had an immense amount of fame. There came a moment in his life where virtually one decision derailed the li his life and his family's life to where 
really from that point on, if we're kind of honest and you look at the story of David, uh, David did not end near as well as he started. Uh, I still believe that he was used by God. Uh, in the last week, we're going we're gonna to look at how important David was in the story of redemption. Um, he was still used. He was still God's plan. He was still a man after God's own heart. But in one major area of his life, we see him as, as you know, as a loser. And, and really the place that is, we see where he loses his family. And this morning, we want to talk about that. And I, I want to kind of know who's in the room. And so I need a little bit of, you know, participation, crowd participation, just so I can know kind of who's in the room. So this is my question. Who in the room are parents? If you're a parent, would you raise your hand so I can kind of see? Wow, that's all over. You can keep them raised. Keep them raised. Now, here's who I need to put down their hands just so I know the difference. If, if you are a parent of kids who your children are grown and gone from your home, would you put your hand down and let me see who I still got? All right, so you can kind of look around. Parents, the one reason I do this is you should look around because you probably need tons of support, and these are the other people that get what's going on in your life, all right? Now, one last question. How many of you that with your hands raised have teenage girls? All right, let's stop and have a word of prayer real quick. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm kidding, sort of, not really. Um, so, uh, no, that's good. I, the reason I want to know that is because uh, this morning's message is specifically targeted, um, I think, I think the people who will benefit from it the most are the parents in the room who still have children at home. And the younger those children are, the more glad you're going to be that you were here this morning. Like I, I've seen around the room this morning, we've got several like babies in um, car, I'm guessing that's cars, those, those things like double now, what are they, like a car seat, bassinet, crib, baby changer, all in one, whatever, you know, I've seen several of those around the room. You're going to be glad you were here uh, because I think the principle that we're going to look at this morning, the earlier and the younger your kids are and the earlier you are in, into parenting, the better it is. Uh, but then I also think there's going to be some parents in the room, particularly those who, like me, your kids are either grown and gone or mostly gone and grown, that you may have a tendency to say, um, wow, I really wish I'd have heard this 20 years ago. And, and, and I, I want to tell you, that, that's probably the truth. I, I, honestly, there's a lot of parents in the room. I wish you had heard what we're going to talk about this morning 20 years ago. But I, I want to say something to the parents of, of kids who are 20 years old plus, 18 years plus, is um, the thought that you stop being a parent or stop being an influence in your kid's life when they leave your home is unnecessary, impractical, and shouldn't be the case. Um, as parents, uh, I, and I, I don't pretend to have done anything right or everything right, uh, I, I do feel like that uh, one of my priorities over the last 20 years, has, uh, my, my goal has always been to be a great dad. I don't know if I've ever pulled it off. Uh, but I try to think about that. But I had a goal when my kids were little that, that kind of guided the way I attempted to parent. And I'm going to give this to you parents in the room as a freebie. Um, and, and you can take this with you. This was my goal. Like I, I, You should have goals as parents, I feel like. You should have goals in everything you do in life. Uh, but I had a goal as a parent. And, um, and, and this was mine. Mine was I wanted to parent in such a way that when my kids were in their 30s, we would be friends. I know it's a really weird, like some of you think I was really hoping for something a little more spiritual than that, Matt. It really wasn't. I do think there's a spiritual nature to that. But this was what I realized. Uh, as I looked around and I thought about 
Um, parents, uh, I, I tried to surround myself with dads that I thought were great dads that, that had kids that were grown and gone when I had kids at home and my kids were little. And one of the things that I admired was dads who had great relationships with their sons when they were in their 30s. Uh, and what I noticed was there seemed to be like this little determining factor. You can either be friends with your kids when they're teenagers or you can be friends with their kids when they're adults and you probably won't get to be both. Um, if, if, you make the, if you'd make the decision to be friends with your kids when they're teenagers, you are probably not going to be friends with them when they're adults. And here's why. Because all teenagers are crazy. So if you try to be friends with crazy... They're either not going to like you or you're not going to like them when they're adults, all right? So be a parent, be authority in their life when they are children and teenagers so that you earn the right to have their respect and can be their friends when they are in their 30s. And, and um, that's my goal. I mean, that's just my parenting goal. Um, I don't want anything more, anything less than for my boys to still be interested in my opinion, and for me to still have influence in their life well into their adult life. And I think a lot of what allows that is what happens in the first 18 years of your kid's life. All right. So that being said, I want to talk to you about a negative example this morning with David. And I want to remind you kind of where we're at in David's life. Um, it's so interesting. David comes into the scene. He's a shepherd. Uh, the prophet comes to his family, comes to his dad and says, one of your boys is going to be king. Uh, they go through a selection process. It ends up being David, the youngest, the least expected. The prophet says, he's going to be the next king. Everybody is surprised by that. And then David goes back to being a shepherd because Saul is still king. And we see him as a shepherd. Then we see him as a fighter. He ends up, um, he ends up in the Valley of Elam in, in a fight against a nine-foot-tall giant named Goliath. And, and his perspective is so on point he shows up to the fight, and, and he doesn't say, who is this big guy? He doesn't say, who is this strong man? He, he doesn't say, who is this great warrior? He says, who is this that defies the armies of the living God? His perspective was, this is not okay because this is not God's plan. And he volunteers to go fight a giant with a rock. And he throws a rock, he hurls a rock out of a sling. It embeds in Goliath's skull. He kills Goliath immediately, and everything in David's life changes. His fame begins to grow. His appeal begins to grow. People love him. They write songs about him. And eventually, he becomes the next king of Israel. And everything that he could possibly want, need, or have is his. He lives in a palace. He's got access to the, to the best of the best, anything that he wants. He's got servants. He's got whatever he wants. And nothing could possibly be better for David. He is a man after God's own heart, is how God describes him. He is a warrior, is how his people describe him. He is loved, he's admired. I mean, there, there are people, there, there are probably little Israelite children with, his, with like his picture on their shirts. I mean, he is the most popular person in the world at that point in time, or at least in that region. And then one day he makes a decision that everything that he had acquired, everything he had aspired to, begins to plummet based on one decision. And that one decision was that in the time when the kings went out for war, David stays at home at the palace. And, and the way I like to illustrate that is, that day David picked up a rock, and he threw a rock into the sea. And it was insignificant. 
seemingly. It didn't seem like a big deal. I mean, he had probably gone off to war a thousand other times or, you know, 10 other times, 20 other times. Every other time he went off. This time, he just didn't go. And when he threw that rock and it landed in the sea, it did not seem to be that big a deal. But here's the thing that we learn today as we begin to see this story unfold. Is that oftentimes, the decisions we make when we throw the rock into the sea, it is impossible for us to estimate how far and how destructive the ripples may be. It is impossible oftentimes for us to imagine what could happen as the ripples from that one rock, as they begin to, as they begin to grow, as they begin to, as time goes along, it's almost impossible for us to estimate how damaging that could possibly be. And this morning, I want to tell you a story of three brothers. And you may be thinking, I mean, my goodness, David is the king. I mean, how, how bad of a family life could he have? Well, let me just tell you, of all the places and all the things that David was, I think he was great as a shepherd, it seems to be. He was great as a poet. He wrote a lot of the Psalms. He was great as a king. He was great as a warrior. He was great as a fighter. He was obviously great with a sling. But he did a horrible job as a dad. He did a horrible job as a dad. And this morning, what I want to show you is a story of three brothers. Now, you may have never heard this story before, but I want to tell you, I'm convinced. It is this story that could have quite possibly been what the producers read when they decided to create the Jerry Springer television show. Okay, Because from what I can tell, if those of you who grew up in the time when Jerry Springer was on TV, is apparently the producers read this story and they're like, Maybe if we get enough people on this show, we can get a story as good as this one. And they never have. All right? There has never been a story. And you're like, I've seen some crazy stories on, on Springer. You've never seen a story quite like this one. So let me show you the story of three brothers. I want to begin with a brother named Absalom. Now, bro, now Absalom was David's oldest son. Um, and, and, and we find out in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, verse 1 starts this way. Now, Absalom, David's son had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. Totally innocent, right? You're like, this doesn't sound like a Jerry Springer show. You're right. This does not sound like a Jerry Springer show at all. All we've got is a brother and his sister, Absalom, Tamar. They are David's children. Now, I want to go ahead and warn you that it's going to get a little complicated. The family tree gets a little harder to comprehend. Right now, it's pretty easy. So if you want to take out, we did this in, in sermon prep this week. We actually made a family tree because I couldn't even keep it sorted out, so I had to draw it on the board where I could figure it out. So maybe you do that. If you've taken notes, you can draw like a stick man with a crown. That can be David. He's the king. Okay. Now, over off of that, what you got is you got Absalom. He is David's oldest son. All right, and he had a sister, which would be David's what? Daughter. All right, good deal. You're from Sand Mountain. You know how family trees work. You can figure this out. You got Absalom, and you got Tamar, brother and sister. All right, no, nothing, nothing crazy, right? So tale of, there's the first one. We're going to see a tale of three brothers this morning. The first one is Absalom. Now let me introduce you to the other one. This is David's third oldest son, and after a time, Amnon. That's David's third son. David's son loved her. And suddenly, in two words, this gets real interesting. So let's draw the picture. 
David. Absalom is his son. Tamar, Absalom's brother, is David's daughter. And then there's Amnon, David's son, which is Tamar's... Hey, how about that? And he loved her. And we're not talking about, hey, this is my little sister, and I really love her. We're talking about, hey, this is my little sister, and I love her. Are you understand what I mean? We got some kids in the room, and I want to be real careful here. But you're like, that is not at all what that means, Matt. You are exaggerating to get our attention. And you're probably right, except there's verse 2 that says, And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. David. Absalom is his son. Tamar is his. Amnon is his. And he loves his. There you go. Uh-huh. Back to that sand mountain thing right now. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Some people in the room are like, what's wrong with that? <laughs> They're Tennessee fans. <laughs> Seems impossible to him. You know why? Let's be honest. You know why it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her? Because this is not right. Not impossible like, I mean, I, it's, it's not able to be. And impossible because it's not what needs to happen. But Amnon was tormented and has made himself ill. You know why? Because just like in the time when kings were supposed to go off to battle, that David stayed home. And his mind began to be tormented because he saw a pretty woman named Bathsheba taking a bath. You see, I, 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 I'll be honest with you. I find it very hard to believe that David just happened out onto the roof and happened at the right time to see a lady who was happening to take a bath at that time who was very pretty. See, my guess is David had seen that happen before and he knew the time and he knew which direction to look and now his mind was tormented by, I can't wait to see her again and again and again. And now all of a sudden his son finds himself tormented, mentally ill, almost sick physically because he can't figure out how can I get what I want and it'd be great if the story just ended there you see I, I think that for a lot of us in the room it's probably not our sister and it may not even be lust but there's probably something in our life that we want so bad, we just almost go to any depth to figure out how to get what we want. You see, there's probably stories in the room of people who spend money they don't have to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't like, and it just almost makes you sick at the thought of, I've just got to have that house, I've got to have that vehicle, I don't know what I'm going to do if I can't figure out how to pull this off, and you will almost make yourself sick trying to scheme your way into figuring it out. For some people in the room, it may be a colleague or someone you work with. And you'd like to believe that it's just innocent and maybe it started that way, but you just almost made yourself sick at 
how you've already in your mind, you have created this, this picture and this image of what could be, and now you convince yourself it even should be. And even though there's everything wrong with it, you begin to find a way to just justify how to make the decision you want to make, no matter how wrong it may be. And even though it seems impossible, you're almost making yourself sick trying to figure out how to make it your reality. But Amnon had a friend. And don't you just love that, by the way? Every time that you're ready to make a decision that's going to derail your life, let me tell you what you can guarantee to count on, that there'll be a friend that'll help you pull it off. It's probably not the friend that you really need to be the friend, but they'll always be that friend. Because let me tell you something, if you're ready to derail your life today, I'll promise if you'll just look around close, there's somebody who will help convince you that it is okay to do it. Whatever that is. Whether it's an addiction, it's a craving, it's a lust, it's financial. There is somebody out there that will help facilitate your dreams of derailing your life and you probably don't have to look far for it. Amnon didn't. He had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. So now, in the tale of the three brothers, we've got Absalom, we've got Tamar, the sister, we've got Amnon, the other brother. Amnon loves Tamar, and then there's a cousin. You can always count on that. There's a cousin. Cousin says that he was a very crafty man. And he says to him, and I want you to see this, because this is so true for us today. He says, oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Catch that. Oh, son of the king, why are you so sad morning after morning? Why are you so tormented? Let me tell you. You want to derail your life? Some of you here this morning are like, that's, that's my goal in life. I'm just, I mean, I, I just, I really would like to find a way to ruin my life. You want to ruin your life? Let me tell you the first step into ruining your life. This will, this will work. And some of you are doing it and don't even know. You're like, I don't want to ruin my life. Well, you, you're about to. Because this is a great first step to ruining your life. Make sure that you pattern your life in this fashion. Are you ready? That's what you do. Write it down. Take a note because you want to make sure you ruin your life well. That's what you do. Be more aware of what you don't have in your life than the blessings that you do have. You make sure of that. You make sure that you fixate your life on what you don't have instead of what God's blessed you with. And that will be a great first step to derailing and ruining your life. See, that's exactly what Jonadab says. Even though he's crafty and he doesn't realize what he's saying, I'm sure, but this is what he says. Amnon, why are you so upset? You're the son of the king. You know what that means? You got everything you could possibly want or need. Why are you waking up upset? Can I say something to you? Chances are, you got everything you could possibly want or need to accomplish exactly what God wants you to do and be exactly who God wants you to be. You want to derail your life? Start focusing on the stuff you ain't got. Instead of being happy and learning to want what you got, get bitter and frustrated with what everybody else has that you don't have. Man, you want to derail your marriage? Start being very aware of all the ways that your wife doesn't stack up to what you would like. Ladies, you want to ruin your marriage? Just start being very... Make, make you a list of all the things that you wish 
would change about your husband. It's a great first start. Maybe present that list to him. It'd be fantastic. He'll, he probably wants to see that this afternoon. Go ahead and start. Forget the rest of the sermon. Just start right now. Right? I, I wish you had a little more hair. Wish you was a little better. Wish you, you know, made a little more money. Because let me tell you, let me tell you the best thing you can do. If you can become so fixated on what you don't have, you'll put yourself in a perfect position for the enemy to paint you a picture of what life could look like, sell you on it, and then bait and switch and give you something different. Instead of just wanting what you got. He says, why, why are you so upset? You're the king. And Amnon says to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. You want principle number two to ruin your life? Number one, be aware of what you don't have more than you're aware of what you do have. Number two, make sure you adjust the narrative to a little more palatable expression. See, here's what you don't need to say. Don't say this. I would like to have an affair and blow my family up. See, if you say that, you're going to be like, well, that was dumb. Here's a better way of saying it. My spouse doesn't give me what I need, and I deserve something better, a little more palatable, a little easier pill to swallow. Don't say, I would like to buy a vehicle I can't afford, live in a house that's too expensive, because what I want to do is live paycheck to paycheck where I don't have the capability to be generous and to live within my means that results in peace. Don't say it that way. Say it this way. I work hard enough. I deserve to have something nice. You want to blow your life up and derail it completely, change the narrative to something a little more palatable. In other words, don't say this. This would be dumb. Don't say, all I can think about is my sister and I want to have relations with her. Then you'll say, that was a dumb statement. Instead say, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. I mean, slightly, slightly more palatable. Just change the narrative to something that feels like it would be a little bit better. Maybe you say something like this. Maybe Amnon learned this from his dad. Maybe you say, well, I mean, what's the big deal? Her husband's off at war, and I'm the king. Maybe you just send for your servants to go and get her and bring her to your room. You just change the narrative slightly so that the story feels a little bit better than I'm so in love with my sister. I'm so lustful after my sister that I can't think about anything else. I've made myself physically sick. You want to derail your life? Just change the narrative. Something that sounds a little more palatable. That gives yourself permission to it. Because let me tell you something in the room. Are you ready? I'll give you something you didn't know till today. You are all incredibly great salesmen when it comes to selling yourself on what you already want to do anyway. Just change the narrative to something that sounds a little more compelling and a little more palatable and a little less gross. And suddenly be okay. Now what a friend should do is go, <laughs> this is what Jonadab should said. Amnon, have you lost your mind? This is a great way to derail your life. But see, you can always count on a friend to, to, to help you when you want to derail your life. You can always count on one. Some of you have some of those friends. Some of you probably are that friend. 
Jonadab says to him, well, if that's what you want to do, here's how you do it. Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to you, say to him, let my sister tomorrow come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may eat it, I may see it and eat it from her hand. Great plan. So Amnon lay down, pretended to be ill. When the king, who is David, came to see him, Amnon said to the king, who is David, please let my sister tomorrow come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And I mean, here's the thing. When you get ready to derail your life, throw a little truth in there too. Don't make it all a lie, but throw a little truth. You know what will make you feel better when you're sick? A couple of cakes or key lime pie. It works. I don't know why we changed it from bread to cakes, but he did. Jonadab said, tell him to make you some bread. He's like, I don't want no bread. I want cake. I'm like, tell my sister, bring me some cake. And so David does. David goes and tells, they sent home to Tamar. He says, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where she was laying down, or where he was laying down. She took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And at this point, we've got a lot of stuff going on. It's not headed a, dick, a good direction. But, I mean, everything could be okay right now. We could control, alternate, delete, and start this thing all over again. But not Amnon. She took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat it. And Amnon said, send everybody out for me. Sends everybody out of the room. So everyone out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cake she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. And the writer of 2 Samuel wants to make sure you know, don't forget, this is her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. Interestingly enough, this is exactly the same words, other than my sister, that Potiphar's wife said to Joseph in the story in Genesis when, he, when she grabs Joseph and tries to convince him to have an affair with her. She says, Come, lie with me. The difference is, in that situation, Joseph said, Not a chance. He said, I'm going to flee immorality. He comes out of his coat and runs away and leaves the coat. In this case, Amnon says, come lie with me, my sister. She answered and said, no, my brother, do not violate me. Look at the language. Do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. He said, this is, this, this is not right. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? She says, what, what's going to happen to me? If you do this to me, I, I, I can't even show myself in public anymore. I'm your sister for crying out loud. And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Listen, I want you to listen to me. See, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Thousands of years ago, there was a club. It's a group of people that got together. It's a tribe, if you will. Had some common interest. They were called the outrageous fools. This particular chapter was in Israel. And it's where it was a group of people, and they're very welcoming, by the way. All you got to do is make a fool of yourself. And do something foolish and derail your life, and they'll let you in the club. Here's the thing. It's got open membership. Don't cost you anything except 
wisdom. And oddly enough, in every town, in every city, in every state, in every country around the world, the same club exists. We got one right here. It's called the Outrageous Fools of Marshall County. I'm not exactly sure where they meet, but they're meeting probably right now. I don't know the time exactly, but if you're interested in being that club, they'll let you in. It don't cost you anything except your wisdom still. All you got to do is pull the trigger on derailing your life, and they'll let you right in. They, are, they have open membership all the time. There's probably even somebody in your life, like Tamar, who will warn you and say, what you're doing is foolish. What you're doing is going to destroy your family. What you're doing is going to destroy your finances for years to come. What you're doing is going to destroy your relationships for years to come. But you see, if you're Amnon, and you watched your father, when you want something bad enough, you go get it. It's what he did with Bathsheba. Send for her. Say, go get her. Bring her up here. I've looked at her taking a bath long enough. It's time to take this to the next level. But he would not listen to her. You know what I bet? I bet when you get to the place in your life where you've made the decisions to derail your life, chances are you're not willing to listen either. You see, if I could do any, if, I could, if there was one thing I could do, the one thing I would choose to do is for every person who's ever sat in these seats, watched online, been a part of this church, I'd like to one by one go to each one of you, grab you by the face, do the same thing in the mirror. I'd like to do this to myself. Grab you by the face and go, listen, listen, listen. God has a plan for your life, and you don't want to miss it. Don't settle for less. Don't make foolish decisions and end up in one of the outrageous fools in Marshall County. Just Find what God wants to do in your life and commit yourself to that. And it's the best possible life for you. And you know what the sad thing is? I could do that a thousand times over. And unfortunately, the vast majority of us in the room would not listen. He wouldn't listen to her. Being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. He rapes his sister. And you're like, well, now there's the Jerry Springer story. Oh, we're just getting started. As soon as that's over, he gets what he wants. Amnon then hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Amnon writes the greatest country song ever written. He hated her with a very great hatred. So that the hatred was greater with the hatred was greater than the love with which he had loved. I can't even like read it. Suddenly the guy says, This is what I want more than anything. I'm so sick because I can't get it. He gets it, looks at her and says, Get up and go, because I hate you now with a hatred greater than the love that I loved you with a few minutes ago. It's amazing what regret does in your life. He says, get up and go. She gets up and she leaves. 
She's wearing clothes that indicates that she's a virgin, so when she gets outside, she rips the robe and she puts ashes on her head to indicate her shame as a result of her brother. She goes back to her brother Absalom. Her brother Absalom says to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? He knows. He tells her, Hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother, and do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman because of what Amnon does to her. Makes it impossible for her to have a husband, impossible for her to have children, and thus she is destined to a life of shame and desolation. And she lives in her brother Absalom's house. And you think, well, now the story's got to be over. This is horrible. Nope. see, two years goes by. Two years after Absalom tells her, just you don't worry about it. Don't talk about it. Don't do anything to your brother. I got it from here. Two years later, Absalom and his, ser- Absalom and his servants and Amnon happen to be together. And Amnon commands his servants... Pay attention. Mark. Take note. When Amnon's heart is merry with wine, because you wait, wait till he gets drunk. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. When he got drunk that night, Absalom had his, had his men kill his brother. And then they all, all the king's son arose, and each one mounted his mule, and they fled. They go back to Israel, and David's terrified of Absalom. It's the craziest thing. The man who was a man after God's own heart, who was a mighty warrior that killed his tens of thousands, is scared of his own son. He's so afraid that at one point Absalom begins to form a coup and Gains a lot of popularity and influence in Israel. And David ends up abandoning the palaces and leaving his concubines there because he's afraid that Absalom's going to come and kill him. And Absalom even goes and takes up residence in the palace. Eventually, the way this story ends, David's lost a son who was about a year old that dies. It was his and Bathsheba's baby. His third-born son, Amnon, has been killed by his first-born son, Absalom. And eventually, Absalom, who is said in chapter 16, I think, of 2 Samuel, to be a very handsome man with lots of hair, is riding his horse out of town, gets his hair hung in a tree. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I'm not anti-long hair. I think long hair is awesome. But if your hair is so long this morning that every time you ride a horse, it gets hung in a tree, you probably need a haircut. I'm just saying it's not a good place to be. Uh, that's what happens. He's riding across, hair gets hung in a tree. And one of David's mighty men, who David told specifically, leave Absalom alone. Don't mess with him. Let him live. One of David's mighty men goes, don't care what the king says. I'm sick of this joker. He's caused us enough problems. Takes three javelins and throws them through Absalom's heart. David loses another son. All because... David one day took a rock and threw it into the sea and had no clue how far and how damaging the ripples would be. And one day, one of David's sons saw something he wanted and said, well, when dad wanted something, he just went and got what he wanted. 
So he violated his sister. And another one of David's sons said, this situation needs to be fixed. And when dad needed to fix something, he killed Uriah. I'll just kill my brother. Because of a very important principle that I want you to hear this morning if you're a parent. If you're here and you're one of the ones that's got a baby in a little bassinet, I'm so glad you're here this morning. You get to hear this early on. I'm going to ask you to write it down and never forget it. Sear it in your heart somewhere. If you're the one that's, your kids are grown and gone, I want you to understand the reality and I want you to do everything you can to today make the changes necessary to earn back the opportunity if that's the case. And if you're somewhere in between, figure this one out. If you get everything else wrong, you need to know this principle. And this is the principle that David, we can learn from David, is that our kids may remember what we say. I have no doubts that at some point David said, look guys, I made a mistake in this Bathsheba thing and this Uriah thing. It's not what you want to do. Have no doubts that if Absalom and Amnon had come to David and said, what do you think about me raping my sister? What do you think about me killing my brother? David would have said, I think that's a really bad idea. Have no doubt. But here's the deal. Our kids may remember what we say, but they replicate what they see. You see, what you do says more than what you say. You want to know what the odds are? If you, 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 you want some odds and some idea of what kind of adults your children are going to be? When you get home today, go look in the mirror. They'll probably look a lot like you. Because they may remember what you say, but they'll replicate what you do. I told you it was a story of three sons. The third son I want to tell you about is a guy named Solomon. He's, the ultimately, he's ultimately the son who takes over as king for David. And I believe that because he saw the chaos of his family, when God said, Solomon, I'll give you anything you want. Solomon said, I'll tell you what I'd really like to have, and that's wisdom. Apparently, I think he looked at his family and went, we're really bad at making good decisions. He says, God, I'd like to have wisdom. And one day, Solomon sits down his son to have a conversation with his son. And I think based on what he saw in his family, we see Solomon's response to his own son. In Proverbs chapter 7, he says this, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, the adulteress, with her smooth words. I want you to know, as we're about to read, and, and Solomon talks about an adulteress, I don't think he really means a prostitute and a seductive woman. I think he's talking about what we do when we want something so bad that it makes us sick. Whether that is a relationship or it's a financial decision, if it's an affair, whatever it is that just you can't get off your mind. Solomon says, I want to help you, son, understand what to do about it. 
He says, at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice, and I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight and the evening, in the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet don't stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. She says, I've made it very seductive. Come and let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us decide, light ourselves with love, for my husband is home, and he's gone on a long journey. And he took plenty of money with him. She says, there'll be no repercussions. But Solomon knows better. And he says to his son, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. And her smooth talk compels him. And all at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag that's caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. He says, oh, sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the word of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray into her paths. For many a victim she's laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. David, or Solomon, looking at the failures of his dad, and the failures of his brothers, look at his sons and say, don't get caught up and throw the rock into the sea. Put the rock down. You cannot imagine how far to go. So your kids remember what you say, but they replicate what they see. You don't believe it? I'll end with this. I don't know how many times driving down the road I notice something that happens all the time. See, I I imagine that when every person turns 16 and they begin to drive, their parents say this to them. Whatever you do, don't text and drive. And yet, you know what I notice driving down the road every day? All the parents texting and driving. And you know what that results in? Teenagers who text and drive. All of us in the room understand the dangers. And yet all of us pull out our phones and pull the trigger on a decision to be one of the outrageous fools. Unfortunately, it's often so much worse than texting and driving. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. And Father, I pray that Help us to be the ones who break the chain of throwing the rock into the sea. It's impossible to estimate the destruction and the distance that the ripples may go and may cause. God, for those in the room who this morning are feeling guilt, I pray that they would understand that 
On the cross 2,000 years ago, you paid the price for every sin and all of our guilt. You offer us forgiveness and freedom. God, for those in the room who have young children, Lord, I pray that today would be a day that you would sear in their hearts and mind with a principle that may make all the difference. In Jesus' name, amen.